Well, good morning, OGC family, and as Skylar said, congratulations again to all our graduates. We're proud of you. We're excited to, uh, to see what God does with your life. And speaking of excited, we're also excited to let you know that um, after a lot of prayer and discussion, the leadership of Orlando Grace Church has, has identified the target of June 7th to begin to come back together uh, and worship on Sundays. Uh, our current plan is to have two services at 25% occupancy. The first, uh, the first service is going to be, Lord willing, at 10 a.m. The second service is going to be at 5 p.m. This will give us enough time in between services to disinfect. If you have small children, to be able to, uh, to make a handoff because in the beginning we don't anticipate uh, providing child care. Um, but we are excited to be able to to reopen, to work through these details. There are a lot of details <laughs> to work through. Uh, so there'll be more communication coming forward. Um, but we are, again, we're just saying begin to reopen because it's not going to be the way that, uh, that we are used to. And we, we anticipate that it will be some months before we come together in a very full room. But we're excited to be able to worship together. Um, if the quality of this, uh, this recording seems higher than it has in previous weeks, is because Matt Kenyon is back. And uh, he's back from paternity leave. We've welcomed Silas into the world. And I am no longer doing this with my iPhone all alone. And I am very thankful to have Matt back. As we jump in this week to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5 is a story that has forever changed uh, our language in some ways. This is the story from which we get phrases like the writing on the wall. Uh, we, we get our, our modern phrase, you have been weighed and found wanting. Uh, contrary to pop culture, this phrase does not come from the 2001 movie, A Knight's Tale. Uh, and as we move forward in, in this chapter, from chapter 4 to chapter 5, we also move forward about 30 years. Uh, we also move forward not only 30 years, but about four kings from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. And uh, not to be confused with Belteshazzar, which is Daniel's uh, Babylonian name, but King Belshazzar. And what's interesting uh, to me, upon first glance, I think if we, as we look at chapters 4 and 5, it can feel in many ways like the same story. In, in both chapters, you have a king, uh, a prideful king. In both chapters, you have something happening. Uh, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's case, a dream. In, in Belshazzar's case, writing on the wall. But something supernatural happens that unsettles the king. The king looks for interpretation of, of the events that are happening. No one can do this. They turn to Daniel, and Daniel can't. <laughs> Same in both stories. But that's where the similarities end. Um, in, chapter, uh, in chapter 4, we got to see God's grace to Nebuchadnezzar on display, on display as Nebuchadnezzar repents of his pride. He praises God for Daniel's interpretation, and, and we have every reason to believe that Nebuchadnezzar enters into the kingdom of God. But in chapter 5, we see God's wrath on display as Belshazzar's heart remains hard and his life is taken from him that very night. When, uh, when I speak at church or really anywhere else, uh, and, I get to, and I get to pick the topic, God's wrath is usually not in the top 10, maybe not in the top 20, uh, because it's just, it's not necessarily a really fun thing to talk about. But that's why at this church, we just walk through books of the Bible. Uh, that way the Bible can dictate the topic and not me. And I know I'm not alone in this because I think God's wrath is, uh, is something that is not only misunderstood, but largely unpopular. 
I was listening to someone speak this week who was talking about the top fears in modern American culture, uh, and, and God's wrath was nowhere on the list. We fear snakes, we fear public speaking, we fear loneliness, all much more than God's wrath. And, and we as people, we even fear death, but we fear the process of death. We don't, we don't largely fear what's on the other side of that death. And if you dial in, I think, to American culture, uh, you would see that we even hold wrath as a virtue but only when it suits us. Uh, we can get behind wrath uh, in certain movies, maybe like Taken or um, Avengers Endgame. We can even embrace wrath when we have been, uh, we, we have some perceived cultural injustice or we've personally been wronged or wounded in some way. And I guarantee you there has been some public situation, maybe some famous trial where you feel like the penalty was not as harsh as you think it should, should have been. And in that situation, that is your desire for wrath coming out. So in this chapter, uh, we have a, a clear picture of God's wrath. And my hope is that, that from looking at this chapter, we would rightly understand uh, the, the idea of God's wrath and, and maybe even desire it. And I know that might sound crazy to some of you all. So just stay with me. Let's walk through this chapter. Last week, we, uh, we looked at Nebuchadnezzar's pride and God's grace to Nebuchadnezzar. This week we're looking at Belshazzar's pride and God's wrath on Belshazzar. So first, let's look at uh, Belshazzar's arrogance or pride. And I think we have to, it helps us to know a little bit about the history to appreciate, to appreciate the setting uh, that we have here. Belshazzar, again, not to be confused with Belteshazzar, who is Daniel. Belshazzar is what we would call a co-regent. Uh, his father is King uh, Neb- Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar is outside of Babylon right now. He's fighting King Cyrus, um, uh, who rules the Medo-Persian Empire. And uh, 10 days before the events in this chapter, uh, King Cyrus has dealt King Nebuchadnezzar of, of Babylon a decisive blow, about 50 miles from Babylon, 10 days before. So we have every reason to believe that word has reached Belshazzar by this point that the, the Medo-Persian Empire has defeated his, his father, the king, and is marching towards Babylon. So what does Belshazzar do? He throws a party. <laughs> And, and this isn't just any party. This is a very wild party. He not only brings all of his wives out, which would have been odd, but he also brings out all of his concubines, which would have definitely not been normal. There's a lot of drinking, and then Belshazzar brings out the, the cups of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Judah so many years before, and they begin to drink uh, wine out of these cups. They get drunk from these cups, and they toast the inanimate gods of gold and silver. I remember a couple, a couple chapters ago, we talked about um, these holy vessels uh, being taken out of the temple in the way that they signify to the world in that time that the God of Israel has been defeated. One commentator likened it to showing up uh, to your office one week and somebody has gathered together all your personal effects and they put them in a box in a different place. The, the clear communication is you do not belong here. You don't work here anymore. You have no more authority here. That's what's being communicated uh, by Nebuchadnezzar and then ultimately now by Belshazzar. So you talk about arrogance. <laughs> I mean, why would somebody throw a party in, in a crazy moment like this? And there are lots of theories as to why. Maybe, maybe he was afraid uh, of the people inside his own kingdom overthrowing him and trying to you know, negotiate some truce uh, with King Cyrus. Maybe he just wanted to look like he was in control. 
maybe he was just in complete denial. Maybe he knew his end was imminent and just wanted to enjoy as many sensual pleasures as possible. I don't know exactly uh, what kind of logic Belshazzar was pursuing. I'm not even sure if Belshazzar knew what kind of logic uh, he was operating on. But I do know that at the core of Belshazzar's arrogance is a deep insecurity. And you can read any psychology magazine or counseling magazine, and everybody agrees at the core of, of pride and arrogance is a deep sense of insecurity. And I don't think there is a greater insecurity in humanity. The ultimate insecurity inside each of us is the reality that death is coming for us all. I, I don't know how long ago I, I said this, but I remember in one sermon I, uh, I confessed that Angela and I have had a secret for a long time. We have seen every single uh, episode, movie, anything produced of Star Trek that's ever come about. <laughs> and we were watching the, the newest Star Trek series, Star Trek Picard, and I think it was in the second episode. Uh, one character was making fun of another character for reading a paper book, which... Nobody did, does, apparently, in the 24th century. And this character said, what, what is this book about? And, and the one who is reading the paper book says, It concerns the existential pain of living with the consciousness of death and how it defines us as humans. So what he's saying is it, it can, it's helping us walk through the pain of knowing that our death is imminent. So even in the 24th century, they have not figured this out. We as humans, we long for... Uh, a, we, we long for purpose and security and significance and, and joy. And the, but the reality of our impending death, it messes with all of this. It creates this deep insecurity because if we're going to die, and if there's nothing on the other side of that death, then, then does our life really matter? Do we have purpose? Uh, is there really such a thing as, as, as right and wrong? And so we have to begin to wrestle with this insecurity. We could be like Belshazzar. We can try to escape this, this insecurity through sensual pleasures, through alcohol. We can live in denial. Uh, this week, it was very interesting, I was having a conversation with one of my children, and, and the topic of death came up, and this particular child said, no, 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 Dad, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about death. And, and it really caught me off guard, but that was this particular child's way of, of living in denial. And we're going to have to walk this child through that. And but this, this denial or this coping or escaping the reality of our impending death, it isn't just limited to non-Christians. We see Christians figure, trying to wrestle through this insecurity as well. And I think, um, I think it's a very small uh, microcosm uh, of this reality has been how polarizing face masks have become in, in our society today. Because you have some Christians who would be appalled that other Christians or anybody really would not wear a face mask. Because you, they, in their mind, you are contributing to the demise of people and the, and the imminent death of some, maybe even someone they love or themselves. And then you have Christians on the other side of, of this who would roll their eyes at any talk of eye masks. And, and I'm not saying this is true of all Christians who aren't wearing eye masks, face masks, excuse me. I'm not saying this is true of all Christians who don't wear face masks, but at least some of them, this might be their way, rolling their eyes at face masks, of just living in denial that there is a death coming and that maybe this could be the way that that death comes. So, but one, uh, one day, 
We are all going to have to face this reality. We are all going to have to face the reality of death. And Belshazzar's moment in this story has come when in the middle of this party, he looks up and he sees this disembodied hand writing on the wall. Talk about a buzzkill. And I have friends who would say, but Jim, the Bible has all kinds of crazy stories in it. And I, I'll believe some, but you can't actually expect me to believe that there was a disembodied hand writing on the wall here. And, and I said in the beginning of this series that Daniel is one of the most, um, one of the most uh, attacked books of, of the Old Testament because of all, the way that all the events that Daniel predicts perfectly transpire throughout human history. Um, and, and Daniel chapter 5 is one of the places that they would attack, one of the places they would focus their attack because they would say, listen, there is no, there's no, uh, there's no precedent for this King Belshazzar. We, we don't know who he is. He's dropped off the face of, of history. So clearly this person is, is, a, is a person of fiction. And that was the prevailing view until... 1854, when archaeological experts did discover tablets in this area uh, that, that made clear that Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar while he was at war. So now this all makes sense. Uh, this is why Belshazzar, in just a few minutes, is going to uh, make, offer to make Daniel the third in, in his kingdom because we know that Nebuchadnezzar is fighting a war. Belshazzar is the co-regent. Daniel becomes third. But more importantly, if you hear anything else in this, uh, more importantly, if the name Belshazzar was wiped from, the, from, from human history from, say, the 4th or 5th century B.C. all the way until 1864, and I do believe that it was, it was wiped from history, how then the, does Daniel know the name Belshazzar? The only way that this could be is if this book was written around the original, in sometime around the original events. And if that's the case then we have to be able to explain how all the events from the 6th century to the turn of millennium transpired exactly as Daniel said that they would. So yes, I, I do believe that, that this is a literal hand, disembodied hand, writing on the wall. So the hand shows up. Belshazzar panics. Uh, depending on, on how you read the Hebrew, he might have collapsed. He might have lost control of his, his bladder or worse. We don't know, but we do know that he's in serious fear. His arrogance has gone too far. His moment had come, and it was his time to face the truth. And this is where we get to the uncomfortable part of the story. This is where we get to God's wrath. Belshazzar calls together all his most spiritual men, and he asks them to interpret the writing on the wall. He promises whoever can interpret the writing on the wall, I'll give you a gold chain, I'll give you purple clothing, which represented royalty. I will make you third in the kingdom, as we already talked about. And of course, none of them could do it. And then the queen comes out. And, and the way I would interpret queen here is queen mother, because all the wives are already out here. This, this queen comes, comes from somewhere else. Uh, I think it would have been highly inappropriate for one of uh, the king's wives to speak to him in this way. Uh, but the queen mom, she can say just about whatever she wants. And she comes out to, to Belshazzar and she says, calm down. There is a man in your kingdom named Belteshazzar, that is Daniel, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And then she went on to remind Belshazzar of all the things that Daniel did for his father or his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, I wouldn't get, yeah, I wouldn't get caught up on this word father. In ancient Hebrew, it can be translated as, as a literal father or, or just predecessor, and that's the way that I, I take it here. So the king brings in um, 
Daniel, and, and you would expect some sort of high greeting, but that's not what, what Daniel gets. Uh, Belshazzar says, oh, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom my father brought from Judah. Quite a welcome. Well, it's kind of awkward when the only person who can give you the supernatural help that you need uh, worships the God that you've just been mocking. So Daniel answers him, and Daniel's tone uh, is very different than the tone that he had with King Nebuchadnezzar. He looks at Belshazzar and he says, keep your gifts. You know, you can picture this 80-plus-year-old man saying, I, I don't need any chains of gold. I don't need purple clothing. And then 14 times in Daniel's discourse to Belshazzar, he says, you, you, O Belshazzar, you did this. And you get the feeling that, that Daniel's poking Belshazzar in the chest as he's talking, which, of course, Daniel wasn't doing. But, but he's, he's coming on strong. He's communicating in, in a serious way 14 times. And Belshazzar, he just wants to know what the writing on the wall means. But Daniel, he wants to give him the why before he gives him the what. So first the why. Daniel contrasts uh, Belshazzar to his father or his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar humbled his heart, even, even though it took some time. He acknowledged that it is the God of Israel who is most high, uh, while Belshazzar just continues to mock that God and, and lift him up as the highest authority in the kingdom. And this was a big deal to Daniel. It was a big deal to God because in, in Belshazzar's worldview and in pretty much every other worldview, they, they wanted to appease the gods. But the God of Israel wants to be honored and vindicated. So to appease a God, that just means that you want to do everything that you want to do, but then have some sort of religious act or hocus pocus that you can do, and then you're all of a sudden good with the gods. That's not how the God of Israel or how Daniel viewed things. The God of Israel wants us to live our lives in a way that honors and vindicates him and shows that we believe uh, he's not just a way we get off the hook. He is a God who is worthy of honor and worship in every aspect of our life. And I think you can almost hear in Daniel's explaining of why. You should have known Belshazzar. You can hear the faint foreshadowing of Romans one twenty one, where Paul writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So Belshazzar, he knew all that he needed to know. He, like us, he's without excuse. No one, especially Belshazzar, can claim uh, ignorance or, or excuse to, to, to who God is and who he was claiming to be. Uh, John Calvin, he, he likens all of us to, um, he says in the, in the way that when babies are born, they're inherently born with the ability to grow up and learn to talk if they're, um, if they're around parents who speak or in, in a family who speaks. And in the same way, just by being born into creation, we should have the ability to discern that there is a God and that that God is due our thanks. Belshazzar, on the other hand, he, he not only has that, he has all this specific knowledge of who God is and what he's done, and you get the sense that the cards are really stacking against Belshazzar as Daniel's refuting him. So that's the why. Now we get to the what. I'm going to read verses 25 through 28. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene Mene Tekel Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided 
and given to the Medes and Persians. And that night, King Cyrus, king of the Medes and Persians, diverted the the water from the river that goes into Babylon. He diverted it just enough that the water uh, lowered and revealed the tunnels under the the wall where the, the water actually enters the city. And the the Medi Persian Empire entered the city through those tunnels, and that night, uh, that night the city was cap- was taken capture. Uh, Belshazzar was killed, and the Babylonian Empire fell. And this was this was the last day that Belshazzar could repent and turn to God, and he failed to do it. And in the same way, there will be a day when it's too late, uh, too late for all of us who have not repented, who have not humbled ourselves to God. And and the Apostle John, when he writes uh, what that day will look like, when when he he talks about Jesus' coming back, when there's no more opportunity to repent and come to God, he likens it to the fall of Babylon because that event was so significant, it was so history-changing, and unfortunately so violent that he says, look at that event and you can maybe get a glimpse of what it's going to be like in that day for those who have not humbled themselves and not repented to the God of Israel. It was the only thing that comes close to helping us understand what's going to transpire on that day when Jesus comes back. And so I I think some of you would probably wonder, why is it that we would desire that to happen? I mean, I said in the beginning that I I hope that we understand and maybe even desire um, God's wrath in a healthy place. And I know that to many, the idea of God's wrath, it sounds, uh, it sounds archaic, it sounds self-righteous, it sounds harsh, but it only sounds harsh when we are at the center of the universe. It only sounds harsh when we are on the receiving end of, of that wrath. But when God is at the center of the universe, then we are going to have this deep desire for him to be vindicated, for him to be honored and valued. And, and probably the best way that I, I can begin to... Um, explain this is imagine your favorite sports team or imagine the school you came from. You desire for that that institution or that team to be honored and vindicated because your association and your desire and your value of that association, when they do well, you're not only satisfied, your, 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 your value in some way might even go up. And so think about that, that, that feeling of when your sports team or your, your, your school, your alma mater does well. Multiply that by 10,000 or 10 million and we begin to get the sense that we should have that the God of the universe should be vindicated. He should be vindicated all the wrong and rebellion that he has experienced here on this earth. And the beautiful thing about Christianity is only in Christianity do we know and have and believe in a God who has created a way where he can be vindicated and we can be spared. And this only happens because he sent Jesus Christ to come and live the life that we never could and take on the full measure of the wrath of God that we deserve on the cross so that God could be vindicated in in Jesus Christ rather than through our Belshazzar-like destruction. This is the beauty of the Christian message. God is vindicated and we're spared. And if you don't understand God's wrath, I would, I would push you and say it's because you, you don't understand the gravity of your sin and the way that it mocks the God of, of Israel and his righteousness in the same way that Belshazzar did when he threw this party, drinking and worshiping the cups of silver and gold. And you can try and wiggle your way around this all you want, but do you know one sign that, that your God is not the real God. It's when you can change him into whatever it is you want. 
God does not conform to us. We conform to God. So we get to choose. God will be vindicated either way. We get to choose how it is that he's vindicated. Is, it, is he going to be vindicated through his rightful wrath on our sin and our stubbornness once it's too late? Or do we want him to be vindicated through the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives, on display for everyone around us to see? Will we be Nebuchadnezzar or will we be Belshazzar? The topic of God's wrath is heavy. But church, we get to be a real part of people seeing the heaviness of it and receiving the grace of Jesus Christ. We can, in a very real way, be the handwriting on the wall to all the people that we interact with. I have a friend who won his state's championship in chess. And I was kind of marveled by this. And I was asked, he was in middle school. And, and, uh, and I asked him, how'd you do this? And he said, well, I, I just took out their queen. And I often lost my queen in the process But it didn't matter because I knew how to use the rest of the pieces and my opponents generally did not. And in the same way, we, church, have lost our queen. Our queen is our Sunday morning gathering. But my prayer for us is that we would be able to see all the other pieces that God has given us in this time and be able to use them in a way where we become the handwriting on the wall to proclaim the grace of God so that when we come back together and we have our queen again, my prayer is that we will have uh, new faces uh, and new souls who are being brought into the kingdom of God. Church, we have in chapters 4 and 5 God's grace and God's wrath on display. And my prayer is that we would see the heaviness of the wrath so that we can revel and marvel in God's grace. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful for all the ways that you communicate to us your holiness and your grace through creation, uh, through your word, and through the, the power of your spirit and your son come to take on the wrath that we deserve. And I pray, as I do most weeks, that this would sink in more deeply by the power of your spirit and that you would enable us, church, to be sent and to go on mission, to live lives that truly have significance and value and joy because we know on the other side of death is an eternity with you. We ask this in your name, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.